Good morning. That was weak, man. The nine crushed it. Good morning. There we go. You guys are more awake. You should be able to do that. Um, dear honor and privilege to be with you. Uh, we do. We go way back. Um, I moved to the Metroplex in 2005, uh, right after getting married. Um, and the Lord brought us here and um, had the privilege to start a counseling practice in Flower Mound um, uh, and, and actually got retrained there as a biblical counselor. And, and so I had a private practice in the Metroplex for, for 10 years. In fact, I actually had an office out here in Frisco uh, before Frisco was all big and fancy. I mean, it was like country roads back then. And um, in fact, getting on 121 to come out to Providence when it was at the saloon, I have fond memories of that because uh, me and a guy named Michael Snetzer would come out and help him start recovery. And, and Michael just got a kick out of that because it was in a saloon and he's a recovering addict, you know? So he just thought that was the greatest thing that we got to do church in an old bar. Uh, and so it's been neat to watch uh, the Lord bless Providence um, and grow this church. Um, a little over a year ago, I uh, got a call um, from Tim um, and began to have conversations with him and with your elders, with some of your leaders, uh, just about some of the desires the Lord had burdened their heart with um, for this body. Um, and, and part of that burden entails what, what I have the privilege of doing with many different churches and helping them come alongside them and build a culture of gospel, gospel-centered, heart-focused care in and throughout the church, not just the pastoral experts, so to speak, or the counseling experts, but for, for everyone in the church to take seriously and be equipped in the call, what the scriptures would call the one another's of scripture, what we would call mutual ministry, the body ministering and, and dis- discipling one another. And so I I was here all weekend doing training with um, many of your leaders. And so uh, we have started a relationship uh, and I pray continue to uh, build on that relationship. And so you are in um, our prayers as a ministry um, because we long to see the Lord continue to use providence um, to reach out to and minister to the hurting people, the, the lost people, the wayward people in this entire area. And that's actually what I'm gonna preach about. Go to Galatians 6. Uh, we're gonna be in chapters one and two. The title of this sermon is called um, Soul Care, God's Call to the Church. This idea of soul care, um, it's, it's really laid out, I think, quite, quite clearly in these two verses. Um, you're not gonna see the phrase soul care in the verses, but you're gonna see a stewardship of souls that Christians are called to as having been redeemed in their souls by Jesus Christ. Because so let me read these two verses and then we will unpack them. Galatians 6, verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Go up there to the beginning of verse one. He says, brothers, he's talking to, this is a a letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church, but what he's saying to them is is just as relevant today as it was then. And we need to to hear this because um, uh, we're kind of coming out of this weird COVID season that in some ways seems like a decade long and in other ways seems like 10 days long. It's just a bizarre season that we're um, kind of moving away from, maybe going back into it, I hope not but it's been hard, has it not? I mean, you, my, my counseling load there at the beginning of COVID, I was like, dudes, I need counseling. I don't wanna counsel any more people. I'm, I'm sick of counseling anxious people. I'm anxious, you know? I mean, just anxiety and fears through the roof. You know, you put people in the same house just for a few hours and you're bound to have some problems. This thing called quarantine, that forced a lot of junk out of people. 
So, I mean, just, just, if I just take counseling alone and then multiply that by the vast amount of struggles that we went through as, as humans, and then you add the political strife and all of that, it's been a dark, difficult season. And, and yet I think the church, if, if, if we pay attention, the church has an opportunity to learn about itself some things that God, I believe, wants to change to grow and strengthen his church. And Paul's gonna speak to those things clearly. And he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This phrase caught, if anyone is caught, it's very important that we understand what he means by this phrase. This phrase means it's tricked by the devil or the weakened sinful flesh. Chances are both. My, my wife will ask me this. She's, we do a lot of ministry together. Um, in fact, in many ways, I think she's a better biblical counselor than I am. Um, but but like, uh, like there's a lady who came over to her house a couple weeks ago. And um, I mean, I'm not gonna get into her whole story, but it, it, her, basically her husband left her and her three kiddos and she's been left to fend for herself. And our church has really rallied around this woman. And it's been a hard season for her to walk through. And there was a number of things that they were dealing with in the home that they had just moved into. A lot of nightmares with the kids and a, a variety of things that, that were kind of coming out, some kind of sin oriented, others that felt like spiritual attack. And when she left after we prayed over her, my wife asked me, so like, do you think that's more of kind of some of her fear issues or is that like spiritual attack? And I said, yes, yes. Like it's the demonic and it's the, the weakened sinful flesh that we walk in daily. Like we're, we're 0 for 2 on this sucker, right? Like we, we all have a weak, sinful flesh and Satan seeks to devour humans. He seeks to devour God's children and, and he, he preys off our sinful flesh. But there's something else that I think Paul is doing here that's profound. He's drawing off an idea from John chapter 8. In John chapter eight, I'll just paraphrase the story. There's a woman that's caught in the act of adultery. See the connection, caught? He uses this specific phrase um, right out of that story. And so the story goes like this. This woman is caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees and the religious leaders drag her before Jesus and they're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him so that they have cause and reason to bring charge against him. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The, the scriptures say, the, the, the law says that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And it's the famous story where Jesus bends down and he scribbles in the dirt. Nobody knows what he scribbles. It really doesn't matter, but he bends down, he scribbles something in the dirt and he says to them, you without sin, throw the first stone. And it says from oldest to youngest, they begin to drop their stones and leave. And then, the, then, the, then Jesus engages with the woman. He says, woman, where are those who would condemn you? And she says, they're, they're gone, my Lord. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Why do you think Paul would use this phrase from the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery to give undergirding strength to the call he's making to the church right here? here here's what I think Paul's doing. I think he's using this phrase on purpose to show that the church, the body of Christ, and listen, this is what we're doing here. This isn't church. This is the gathering. You know where church happens? Between Sundays. 
The church is you being invested in each other's lives as having been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, called into one another's lives, ministering to one another, pressing into one another, exhorting one another, praying for one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, serving one another. This is the church. And then guess what we get to do? We get to gather on Sundays and let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And then we go back out in the world. And so what he's saying to the church is he's saying the body of Christ should be a place where a woman like this should be welcome. That's not the church I grew up in. I grew up in New Mexico, just the other side of the Texas border. It's the far end of the Bible belt out there. This is the buckle, just go to the other end of it. That's where I grew up. So lots of Christianity, lots of moralism. And the church that I went to, they preached the Bible, they loved Jesus and that's where I got saved. But it was often, oftentimes a biblical behaviorism. You know what I mean by that? Like you beat people over the head with the Bible until they conform morally, but maybe their heart hasn't changed. And that's a concern because Jesus is more concerned with the heart. And, 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 and it's like when you went to our church, it felt there was just this, this feeling about the, the church. And it wasn't because it was necessarily said, but the feeling was this, when you would come to church, it's like before you walked in the doors, you kind of needed to airbrush yourself to look a certain part, like you're this good Christian. And then you went in and you did church, but secretly everybody's eroding inside. People struggling with alcoholism, people cheating on their spouses, but nobody's talking about any struggle because we're all evidently fully sanctified. But it wasn't true. It wasn't true. People were dying on the inside. And, and so that, that version of church that I grew up in was so confusing to me because it's not what I actually read in the scriptures. And it's for sure not what Paul's proposing. He's proposing that the church should be a place, that the body of Christ should be a place where a woman or a individual caught in a deep sin struggle because of the demonic and because of the weakness of their flesh that's asking for help, that's needing help, that knows they need help to be received by the people of God. And you know what? We're the woman caught in the act of adultery. We're no different than her. We're the one who were ensnared in our sins trapped in our sins. And Jesus reached in and he cleansed us and he drew us into his grace. He drew us into his love. He drew us into his mercy. And now he calls us sons and daughters. So the body of Christ, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this place, and I'm not talking about a building, talking about a people, this place, these, the people of God, the redeemed Christian, the church, is to be a people, a place that receives those because we know we were once caught in a significant transgression and we've been cleansed and forgiven. So brothers, if anyone is caught in, in any transgression, so here's what Paul does now. He kind of sets the stage for what the body of Christ should look like by way of engaging brokenness. And then he's now gonna give some instruction for such an occasion. Look at this in, uh, at the end of verse one. You who are spiritual should restore in a spirit of gentleness. So here's the instruction for such an occasion. The who, the what, and the how. Let's, do, let's start with the who first. You see it right there. You who are spiritual. And it's, it's actually kind of comical what Paul's doing here. Um, you know who's spiritual? You. You know why? Because if you're a new creation in Christ, guess who indwells you? Holy Spirit. So he's saying, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Okay, you're good. 
You can, you can minister to that person caught in any transgression. You got the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. It indwells you, you're equipped more than you know to minister to that person, to minister to the person that's caught in this transgression. But there's another thing that Paul is doing here. Um, in that culture at that time, Paul bumped into this, this belief system called Gnosticism. Um, and I would say Gnosticism still very much exists. We just don't call it Gnosticism anymore. And here's what Gnosticism is. Gnosticism is special revelation. And it's a special revelation to a particular group of people that separates them from all other people because those people don't have the special revelation. So it's just, I guess you don't have the saving knowledge that I have. I've been given this special revelation. That's Gnosticism. So here's how Gnosticism looks in our culture. Our culture, and I see this all the time because my background's in counseling. I had a professional counseling practice for many years. And so um, it's not uncommon for people to come to our church, find out that I'm the counseling guy, even though I don't do tons of counseling at the church, I equip people to do the counseling. They'll walk right past some of the strongest Christians in our church to come to the subject matter expert because I'm the counseling guy. And, and people get a bit nervous when I show up at their church to do counseling training with them because they're like, man, I'm not really a counselor. Well, there's this word in the Bible called exhort and that word literally means to counsel. So if you're a Christian, you're a counselor. So here's my question to you. What kind of counsel are you given? Is it from the word or is it from the first book of opinions? Like, is it grounded in truth? that God uses to change and penetrate hearts or is it theoretical or philosophical or influenced heavily by the winds and the waves of the doctrines in this present age? It's a fair question. It's a fair question, but, but what Paul's doing is he's pushing against special revelation and saying, if you have the spirit of God in you, more than you know, especially as you love God and love people and love his word, he grows a spirituality in you and the spirit has more room to work with so that we become ministers of grace to God's people. Some of my favorite stories as a pastor over the years has been watching the Lord raise up kind of the least likely people to do some of the most profound ministry in the churches I've had the privilege to minister in. Like I think of people with, that maybe didn't have degrees or maybe didn't have specialized training. They, they just loved Jesus and they loved the word and they loved people and this, the Holy Spirit was flowing through them powerfully and they were used greatly to minister. And they didn't have a degree on the wall like me. My, my grandmother, um, she's with the Lord now, um, but she, her and my grandfather taught me more about the gospel than, I mean, maybe anyone. I mean, they're, they're up there in the top two or three. Um, it's just people God used to minister to me. And the thing about my grandmother is we used to say this about my grandmother, grandfather, and we still talk about it at times that they retired to pray for us. And here's what I mean by that. We, I, it wasn't uncommon for me to go because they lived in the same town I grew up in and I just loved spending time with them. And it was not uncommon for me to go to their home and they would be on the back porch drinking coffee, praying for any and all things that the Lord had laid on their heart. And see, I'm getting there like 9 a.m. I mean, evidently the older you get, you start getting up at like 3.30 and four. That's so ridiculous. Like my dad gets up at four. I'm like, dad, why would you get up at four? But I'm 42 now and I'm starting to get up real early. Like my dad, I don't really like it, but it's just kind of wake up, you know? And, and, and so who knows what time they got up? And they would, it's like they were eager to hit the back porch. And, and they would pray for us grandkids. 
They would plead for grandbabies that hadn't even been born yet. They would plead for spouses that hadn't even been met yet. And they would pray for neighbors. And then if they weren't doing that when I came over, the other thing they would be doing is somebody from the neighborhood would be in their living room. And guess my granny? She'd be doing phenomenal counseling with them. I don't know how many people she led to faith in that living room. You know why? She didn't finish high school. She loved Jesus. She loved the Bible. She loved people. And the Holy Spirit really liked those things about her and used her in profound ways to do this type of ministry. But, but here's the thing, like you don't have to be nervous. Like p- people come to me and they'll say, I don't have a ministry at the church. Yeah, you do, right here. You have a ministry at the church because if you're in Christ, you have the spirit of God in you and you've been called into each other's lives. Like I think one of the great dangers in the American church, and I think COVID exposed this the most, we are such a Sunday heavy mindset when it comes to the church. And, and when COVID took our Sundays for a spell, we didn't know what to do because we weren't in the lives of each other. We're so disconnected. I'll see you at church on Sunday. And I'm like, that's not church. The church is the people that go into their neighborhoods and minister to one another and and minister to their neighbors. And as the Lord's drawing people in this whole community into his saving grace, he draws them into fellowships that do church like this because they take seriously the call of ministering the gospel because they've been saved and ministered to by the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul's proposing. And so don't, you can't say any longer you don't have a ministry at the church. You do. It's called your brother and sister. And you don't have to be a professional counselor to press in and minister. Love them, serve them, pray for them, care for them, love and pursue their hearts. And that's faithful gospel ministry. But if we have this mindset that the church is kind of just a place where we show up, we check a box, we get encouraged a bit and go back into to our lives we miss early and often those opportunities to connect on a deeper level with one another where God does a profound work of sanctification. And here's another thing, and I, and I, I'm gonna, I, want, I wanna try to pull it back a bit because I don't wanna be super negative on this, but I do need to press. In the Western church, especially in good old Texas, churches don't really struggle in Texas. They struggle for different reasons, but there's lots and lots of churches. I, I think it's probably still true, but in DFW at one point, there was more churches per square mile here than anywhere in the world. That's probably still true because every time I drive through the Metroplex, there's a new church being built. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I think so often in the West, especially in a Bible Belt culture like that we live in, I think it skipped over Austin, just so you know, but (laughs) nonetheless, there's still ministry opportunities there. But in the Bible Belt type culture, um, we see church as a place where we come to get fed but that's the extent and the limit of our understanding of the body of Christ. Yes, come and be fed. But the other part of the sanctification there is that God wants you to to bring you here to come and die. You know what I mean by that? To empty yourself on behalf of your brother, sister. To empty yourself and to serve and to bless and to give as unto the Lord to others, to minister the gospel. And that's the other side of sanctification that I think we miss so often because we're all about feed me, feed me, feed me, not pour me out, pour me out, pour me out, Lord. What if Providence was a church? And I think y'all are are very much growing towards and for this goal. 
that was more about their brother and their sister than what's in it for me. It's so hard when we have that mindset of what's in it for me because then we get tired of a place and we leave our commitment to Christ and one another to go to the next thing that tickles me in a particular way. And it limits our sanctification. And so Paul's calling them into one another's lives. And then he gives them the what. So from the who to the what. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. So this is the what, this picture of restore, um, the, the phrase literally means to, to reset a bone. Okay, so when I was probably 12, maybe 13, somewhere in that range, playing little league baseball, right-handed batter, I hated being in the batter's box. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a good batter, okay? I was scared of the ball. That's not very helpful when you play baseball. Um, and this is why I was scared. The story I'm about to tell you. I took a pitch right on the wrist, okay? Broke the bone. But my dad's a strong man, gracious man, but he don't, want to, he don't have time for that kind of stuff. And so during the summers, I would work for my dad and, and my dad's company, and, and it was a lot of manual labor. And so we had a job a couple hours away from where we lived. And so I've got this broken bone. It has had no medical attention. It's just hurting severely. And my dad, because I was so young, I couldn't handle all the big machinery that they used. I got all the grunt labor jobs like shoveling dirt and raking dirt. And so for two weeks straight, I'm raking dirt with this wrist that's broken and I can't hardly hold the rake anymore. And, and I was afraid to complain to my dad anymore because he had shut that down. And all he had to do to pacify me was give me a honey bun and some chocolate milk and I'm good to go another day for work. And I guess that's how he paid me. But then um, finally got home and my mom, she hears me complaining. She sees that it's a bit swollen. Take me to our town doctor. Guess what? It's broken. My dad felt terrible. But then the doctor, and it's good that he did what he did. The doctor, he grabbed my arm and he was just talking with me and he was distracting me. I know this now because he was about to reset the bone. The bone can't heal if it's not reset. Okay. And when he reset that bone while I was distracted, it felt like fire shot through my whole body. It hurt, hurt so bad. And so here's this picture of restoration. Ministry in the body of Christ is never a guarantee to pain-free care. It's gonna hurt, but on the other end of it is life. You see that? That we, we gotta reset this. We gotta connect this. We gotta, we gotta press into this. This is gonna hurt. But, but on the other end of it is healing. On the other end of it is life. Like we don't go into ministry with one another to purposely try to hurt people, but we have to understand that messiness breeds messiness and hurt people hurt people. But in the grace of the gospel, we press into those things because we believe on the other side, there's life and there's healing. So if you've ever been hurt by caregivers, you have to ask yourself, where were they trying to lead you? Because if they were trying to lead you to Jesus, you gotta give them some grace because they may have wounded you a bit, but they were trying to get you to a place of healing. If you've ever hurt somebody, there's many a time as a counselor, here's the analogy I always use. Like if I'm a surgeon and there's a tumor, I gotta remove the tumor. And, and sometimes as a counselor, as a caregiver, I fumble with the scalpel and cut somebody a bit too much. And, and yet this hurts, we've gotta remove this. I'm sorry that I cut you a bit too much, but it doesn't change the fact that we've got to press into this and remove this. But it's not just restore, you have gotta take restore in, a, in, in, um, in the how. 
And the how is in a spirit of gentleness. So you put restore and in a spirit of gentleness together, they have to be together. So the who, you who are spiritual, the what, restore, and the how, in a spirit of gentleness. So this picture of gentleness, it's to, it's to reset that bone, but in a very gentle and tender way. So here's another example. I was diagnosed with Crohn's when I was 13 years old. And so the summer before they diagnosed me, um, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So tons and tons of medical tests. Um, and none of those medical tests are pleasant. They're all super invasive and they all are always, always have something connected to it where you have to drink something that tastes awful so they can take x-rays, okay? So I'm already sick. I'm already, my gag reflex is, is heightened. And I'm in this radiology room with the doctor and, and he's trying to get me to drink this chalky stuff that I can't keep it down. I just keep throwing it up. I'm 13. Just keep throwing it up, keep throwing it up. And he's getting incredibly frustrated. And he starts to get rough with me. He starts to jerk me around a bit. And because I couldn't keep it down, he got a tube and he stuck it down my nose, down into my esophagus so that they could get the fluid all the way down into me without me throwing it up. Well, as he began to insert the tube, he was so frustrated, he was jamming it. And I could taste blood in the back of my throat. It's good my dad wasn't there. <laughs> and I can see somebody in my peripheral vision, somebody, a figure coming towards, and this other doctor forcibly removes him. And then he grabs, this doctor grabs the back of my neck and he gets real close to my ears and he says, okay, take a deep breath. This is gonna hurt just for a second, but take a deep breath. And while I took a breath, the tube was inserted, they did the test, they found out the problem and we were off. So here's what care looks like in the church. This is gonna hurt, but take a breath because once we get past this, you're gonna have life and you're gonna have healing. See restoration and gentleness, they go hand in hand. We don't bully people, we don't beat them up, we don't manhandle them. We may hurt them a bit, but it's to get them to a place of life and healing in Christ. So you who are spiritual, restore, and then in a spirit of gentleness. There's some attitudes though. There's some attitudes in the church that work against this beautiful picture of men and women, brothers and sisters caring for and ministering to someone caught in this transgression. Here's the first one. The first one is what I call the passive heart. The passive heart in the local church says this. Well, that's none of my business. Them broken people, those broken people that kind of go to that support group, that's none of my business. Or in your small group. Oh yeah, they're struggling. None of my business. Well, I'm really glad Jesus didn't treat us that way. I'm really glad that Jesus was about the business of the father. So much so that he went willingly all the way to the cross and made our sin his business. Nothing passive in gospel care. Gospel care sees brokenness and advances towards it, not away from it. The passive heart resists this beautiful ministry. Here's the second one. It's the condemning heart. And I see this in churches and it, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. The condemning heart says this, serves them right. Serves them right. What do you think happens when you make decisions like that? I was, I was doing a funeral, it was actually in Flower Mound um, years ago. And um, a young man uh, who went to Marcus, um, great football player, had a tragic accident um, off in college near, near Texas A&M. Um, died in that car wreck and all of his friends from Marcus walked across to our church and I did the funeral. Talk about intimidating. <laughs> and while I'm doing the funeral, this man gets up. 
I don't know if he was a relative or what, he just busts up onto the stage and grabs the mic and he starts screaming at all the teenagers. Nothing good happens after 11. I'm like, really? We're here to mourn the loss of this young man and you're gonna come and preach at people? So then I have to come up after him and try to recoup that thing so that we can get back on to mourning and celebrating this young man's life. The, the judgmental heart looks at people's brokenness, turns its nose at it and says, serves them right. Well, I'm for sure grateful the Lord hasn't treated us that way because the wages of sin is what? Death. We've earned any wrath, any of it that comes to us. God's the one who broke the rules to make a way for us to have grace. Amen? And we're glad that he did. So the condemning heart is graceless. And then here's the third attitude, gossip and slander. Gossip and slander is the other attitude that works against this beautiful ministry of restoring gently those caught in transgression. The, the, the gossip and slander I think is best seen in John chapter four. John chapter four is the woman at the well. She goes at noon. All the other women were there early in the morning. Why do you think that she was there at noon? She didn't wanna face the shame and ridicule of all the gossip busybodies in the morning. So, so here's how that looks in the church. People talking about each other, people judging each other's struggles, but never caring enough to come alongside the person who's in that place of weakness and caught in that transgression. All of these prideful attitudes work against this beautiful ministry that Paul is calling the church to. And then look at verse two. He says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this picture of bearing with, it's uh, incredible ministry. Um, Here's what it means, that God's never intended for us to carry burdens alone. He's intended for the church, the body of Christ to do that together. And the picture is this, it's like, I've got a heavy weight on my back and I have to carry it. You can't carry it for me, but you know what? I can offer you a shoulder. Hey, let me get my shoulder under this half of it and then we'll carry it together. That's the picture of burden bearing. Like it's a weight that we have to carry. We're, we're bringing that burden to Christ ultimately, but we can come alongside one another and offer some shoulder and support to, to lessen the weight of that. Anybody had that happen to them? Like I remember when we got married and we moved to Louisville. I mean, brand new married. And it's really the last time I had a significant flare up with Crohn's. I'd been sick for quite a few months. Even when I lived in New Orleans, we move here, I'm in this flare. My body wasn't ever kind of calming down and finding a healthy state. So in and out of the hospital. And our, our home group at the church, it was our first home group that, we've ever, that we were ever a part of together. In fact, I met with that home group leader this week. He was on sabbatical and we spent some time together as he was rolling through town. And we were just reliving the memories of being young, dumb and not knowing what we didn't know but how formative those years were for us as, as a, a group of believers. And I was in Plano Medical Center. We lived in Louisville. My wife worked near Irving, big giant triangle. So every morning she would get up probably around four, drive to our apartment in Louisville, get ready for work, drive to a job that she just did not like in Irving, and then she would drive back home after work, get some stuff and then come to the hospital. She did that every day. And I had three different stints in the hospital each for 10 days. And I couldn't do any work. I mean, I'm just in the hospital. 
And every night, nearly every night, our home group would come up to the hospital. The dudes would hang in the room with me and we would, we would be lighthearted a bit because I needed that, it was just heavy. And then they would pray for me and the ladies would take my wife to dinner. I found out later that that's where my wife was bringing her sorrow and agony. Like she was strong in the room with me, but she would break down with those women and they ministered to her. I don't know what we'd have done if we didn't have that during that period. Changed me forever. It's when the Lord really started to show me, this is the church. This is what we do for each other. This is what we do to care. You know why? Because Jesus did it for us first. How can I not for you? Um, there's this story in Genesis. After sin enters the world, there's Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel um, both bring a sacrifice, a worship offering to the Lord. God's pleased with Abel's, he's not pleased with Cain's. Cain's gets jealous and furious and he murders his brother. And then God calls out to Cain later, hey, um, where's your brother? Where's your brother? And, and Cain says this, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And here's how I would answer Cain. Yes, yes. Your ministry to one another is that you are each other's keeper. You're, you're greatly concerned for the well-being of one another, even if you don't know each other that way. And here's the question I would ask you, do you see the church that way? Or do you just see the church as a place that you go to, to be a part of all these different things, but there's not necessarily a call on your life into other Christians' lives? because this is exactly what Paul is laying out to this church. And then I love this, this bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a massive statement that in light of the gospel, Paul is saying that the tangible expression of the gospel in the heart of the believers is not looking further inward, it's looking more outward. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second is like it, what? Love self as you love yourself? Nope, love others as you love yourself. And what he's saying there, Jesus is saying that you already love you. You already care for you, love others that way. So the gospel radically changes the heart of the believer in such a way where we have these new eyes, we have a new heart. And now we begin to see people, not as a means to an end, but somebody that I can pour my life out for. And, and, and that's the other side of sanctification for the body of Christ that we're so often missing, being poured out as an offering to bless and minister to the people of God. This is what God desires the church to look like. So I think in just these two verses, if we took a poll right now, who wants to be a part of a church like this? I think by, by and large, the majority, probably 90 plus percent would be like, I wanna be a part of a church like that. And here's the thing, I think Providence is a church like that striving to grow even more to be a church like these two verses are. We, we want this, right? Like I look back on what I grew up in and I'm grateful for many things, but there's things that I purposely do now differently because of how broken that church culture was. Broken because of a misunderstanding of the gospel and how the gospel presses us into one another, not forms isolated categories away from one another. So here's my question. If, if we all want this, and this is what we feel like we should strive for because it feels right to us, why don't we see this more in churches? Why? 
Like it's so clear, verses one and two. So clear, this is what the ethos of the church should look like. Why don't we see this more? He answers the question in chapter five, verse 26. Go up a couple verses. So there's several commentators that I've read and other theologians I've listened to about this section that believe chapter 26, I mean, chapter five, verse 26 should actually be verse one of chapter six. The original text doesn't have chapter breaks anyway in verses, okay? Um, it just kind of flows as one. They break it up as they've made the, brought the Bibles together over the years so that you can see the different sections that are being spoken to in the original text. But this, by way of flow of thought, starts right here, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So this word conceited, it's not really a word that I think we do well with because I don't, I mean, I, I don't know that I've called anyone conceited since like junior high. You know, it's just not a, a word that we do much with. This word conceited, it means vainglory. Vainglory, it means empty of glory. So here's the picture of being conceited. Vainglory, it's a person is desperate, okay? Vainglory always carries this. They're desperate for recognition, meaning, and affirmation. Okay, they're empty of it, so they're desperate for it. And they're seeking to fill that emptiness with other people's affirmation and recognition. In a word, it's pride. All pride has vainglory connected to it because there's an emptiness that I'll extort you to fill in me. We become human extortionists. In our pride, we use people. I see this all the time in marriage counseling. Like couples come in and they're, they're like all elated before they get married and then real life sets in. And all of a sudden he's not doing this. She's not doing this. Doesn't he know I need this? Doesn't she know I need this? In essence, what they're saying is I'm empty of those things. You're supposed to do it. You know what the problem with that is? God never designed people to backfill those areas of our soul. That's his turf alone. So my pride will use you to make me feel good. You know why the church doesn't do verses one and two? Because of pride. We make it about us. Which is why we don't engage each other. Because I'm only interested in you by so far as what you can do for me. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And it's for sure not the attitude of Christ. Like, do you ever see Jesus talking to God and saying, God, I'll do this, but what's in it for me? He never once communicates that attitude ever. He's like, your will be done, Lord. Would you remove this cup from me? But your will be done. Not once did he, does he ask what's in it for me. In fact, he's the greatest burden bearer we'll ever see. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. You know who bore burdens first? Jesus Christ. He's simply calling us to the same ministry that he's gone ahead of us and perfectly extended to us through salvation. So our call to bear burdens, our call to mutual ministry, our call to gently restore is because we're the woman caught. We're the person caught in transgression and God's restored us through his son. He cleaned us. 
He's redeemed us. He's healed us. And because he loved us first, because he advanced on us first, because Christ walked all of these things out for the glory of the Lord on our behalf so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be cleansed. That gospel that has saved us now transforms us into one another's lives. So I'm gonna say it again. You can't say after you leave here, you don't have a ministry at the church. You do. It's called your brother and your sister. Be your brother's keeper. Be your sister's keeper. Um, I'll close with this story. I mean, I, I, this story, I could tell dozens of stories like this story. This is just one of my favorites. Um, I've pastored at three different churches. Um, Flower Mound, uh, Fort, well, I guess four technically. Fort Worth, a church in Canada, in Muskoka, just two hours north of Toronto. Um, and now back in Texas at uh, Radiant Church. And so I've seen what I'm about to tell you in other stories at every church that I've been and, and then in churches that I've had, I've been able to help. It's just, it stirs my affections when I get to see the Lord work this way. But this was at the church in Canada. Um, I was at the back of the church. We met in a cafeteria and it was a thriving church. My, my 10 years at the village were phenomenal. But also when we went to Canada, the Lord used those three years in Canada to blow my mind at his grace and what he's doing to build his church. Those were precious years for us. Standing at the back of this school cafeteria where we met on Sundays, and there's hundreds and hundreds of people at this church. And that's a, like our church was 700 people. That's a mega church in Canada. That's a mega church in Canada. And, and I'm at the back of the cafeteria, and the people are flooding in, and I'm standing next to our lead usher, who was the equivalent of a state policeman in Ontario. And we're, we're kind of just talking and visiting, and this man walks in, and this man has a, like a leather biker vest. He's got tattoos, he's got a long ponytail. You can tell he's lived a rough life, never seen him. And I'd been there a couple years at this point, never seen him. And, and our lead usher kind of elbows me and he goes, I love our church. I was like, uh, I need some context, why? And then he begins to tell me stories about this guy. And this guy had a horrible reputation with the police in that area. He, he was known for be, being a brawler. Like he would fight police officers. Um, in his story, he grew up in inner city Toronto. Um, a lot of abuse in his family. He committed some crimes in his young years, um, had to flee from the authorities, got across the border, came into the States, changed his name, changed his age, got into the army and went to the Vietnam War, became a Green Beret. And so rough dude on the streets. Now he's got some legit training, special forces. And he did that for several tours. And, and so now he comes back to the States, a better trained criminal with PTS and severe addiction issues. And he's trying to drink and drug away the PTS, gets deported back into Canada, serves his time that he originally was supposed to serve, and then gets connected with a, um, a gang and I'm not talking like a, a dumb little gang. I'm talking like an organized crime gang. Like if I said the name, you would know it, but I can't ever say his name and I'll never say the name of the gang because he got out of the gang and they don't let people out. And he got out somehow. So I don't, I don't ever want them to hear this and make a connection to this guy. So he gets out of this gang somehow. That's how scary this guy must've been. But his job in this gang, he was an enforcer. So he would go to places who owed money to this organized crime and he would collect. He was very effective at his job. 
And he made enemies inside the gang, got kicked out. They left him alone and just said, bygones be bygones. He moves two hours north of the city where we were. He owned a, a, a trucking company and, and they excavating different things. And he got in a severe car accident, got pinned by a big 18 wheeler and broke his back. He was in the hospital for months. And three men from our church, three older, unassuming men that really didn't have much business kind of being friends to begin with, if you kind of took what they did, like three unlikely friends. The only, the only connection they had was they're united in Christ. And they had this Bible study. They had, they had a, a small group at our church and they found out about this man being in the hospital. So they went and they visited him nearly every day. They would go and bring him food. They would go feed his dog. They would go and pray with him. And this guy's a hardened dude, okay? I, I, He's killed people, man. I know he has. I just said, don't quit telling me your story, bro. If you tell me all this, I, got, I probably got to report this. So like, just, just, just let it go. We'll just leave that with Jesus, okay? I mean, this is a bad man. And, and the nature of his brokenness, I'm just like, ooh, we need about six intensives for this one. And, and they go every day and they minister to him. Well, he gets out of the hospital, starts to walk again. And he's so moved by these men's love and pursuit of him, he starts to come and check our church out. So that day, I'm in the back of the cafeteria, he walks in, officer gives me all of this context. And then I begin to have the privilege to walk with him. And he tells me his whole life story. And the brokenness in this man's life. And yet I can see the Lord saving him and the Lord's drawing him into the fold. He didn't even know it yet. He's about to get saved. He didn't even know it yet. And you can just see that he's responding to the spirit, wooing him into our fellowship. And these unlikely men reaching out to this horrific man and ministering the gospel to him. And the Lord drawing him into community at the church where people begin to surround him with the love of Christ. Like it was beautiful to watch this man weep and worship. That stuff changes me. Because when the gospel invades your soul and then God draws people into the midst of his church, everybody's faith grows when we watch Jesus show off like that. Everybody watched this man and was just like, look how amazing the Lord is. He saved that guy. I'm that guy. I'm the woman caught in the act of adultery. You and I are the ones caught in that snare called sin. And by God's grace, he's drawn us out of the muck and the mire. He's drawn us into the light. He's healed us and he's drawn us into his covenant community to minister to one another that we, our minds would be blown over and over and over again at the healing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You wanna be in that ministry? Let's do it together. This is what we're called to. Let's pray.